You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. church. This is a mini-series, two parts in Acts 16, and we titled this mini-series, Open Doors, Open Hearts. And if you recall from last week, we saw that God did something supernatural, divine initiatives. What does he do? The missionary team is going one way. He directs them another way. He closes the door, but opens the door. They were going to Bithynia, modern-day Istanbul, which is north and east. And God's Spirit directed them west to Europe. The gospel enters Europe, a place called Philippi, world-class city. And so last week, we examined three divine initiatives. God is working. He is initiating. His kingdom is coming. And we're going to build upon last week uh, with three more divine initiatives. So... If you have your Bibles, uh, please open them, and always, if you have your Connect card, want to encourage you. So, divine initiative number four, God works to rescue us from the domain of darkness. You know, we heard a story there, and remember, Luke now is with this team. The team is Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. Luke is an eyewitness. Luke wrote the book of Acts. So basically now we have an eyewitness account of what took place in Philippi. And one of the beautiful things that we see in verses 16 through 24 is that a demon-possessed girl is freed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And folks, I hope we stand in awe of God this morning. I hope we think that that is remarkable. And I want to spend just a few moments to unpack who this girl is. We have enough data from the text and history to know how it works. First and foremost, can you imagine being an 11 to 14-year-old girl who was sold into slavery by her parents? That's exactly who this girl is. She's a kid. But notice also in the text, verse 16, she's tormented by who? A demon. And literally, she is being used by her slave owners to do what? To make money. She is a fortune teller. And how do we know that that is for real? The text is very clear. That she was making great profits for her masters. And when the demon was cast out, what happened? Their profit went away. They got mad. Paul and Silas get arrested, beaten, and thrown in prison. But one of the most remarkable things that we're going to see in this text is how the demons respond to Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. I want to draw your attention to Acts 16, verses 17 and 18. Notice again, this is what the demon is saying through this child, if you will. These men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the slaves of the Most High God. And, and the demon did this through her for many days. Think about the implications of that. This is the first time the gospel is penetrating Europe. Context is king. I hope you realize that Jesus had never once been proclaimed in Philippi. There was never a missionary team. So all of a sudden, Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke show up. Lydia, we looked at last week, a professional woman, comes to faith in Christ... 
But this is brand new. The gospel is coming for the first time. And who recognizes the gospel messengers? I find it remarkable. It's a demon. Notice what the demons say. They're proclaiming the way of salvation in Philippi. The demon was absolutely accurate. That's exactly what Paul and team was doing. But why was this really awkward for Paul and team? The text suggests that these demons were shrieking, kind of screaming, this male demonic voice coming from a, a 11 to 14-year-old girl. Now, this is a dated movie, but some of you may have seen The Exorcist. How many? That's what's going on here. This is a really weird scene. This is Linda Blair kind of scenario. And so Paul gets frustrated and confronts the demon. And so folks, the question is, what must we learn from this passage? And I think there's a lot to learn. I want to draw your attention this morning to James chapter 2, verse 19. Notice what James, the brother of Jesus, says. He says to his audience, which is Jewish believers, you believe that God is one, you do well. Notice this, the demons also believe and they shudder. I want you to know something this morning. Satan is real. He has demons who work alongside him to accomplish what? Their mission. But we live in a day and age where, you know, Satan is diminished. We don't believe that there's real evil and demonic activity. I picked up a book last week in preparation for this morning. It's a remarkable book. I want to put it on the screen. It's by a secularist, an educator, a professor from Columbia University. His name is Andrew Del Banco. And basically what he does is, he goes on to explain how America's worldview is so contrary to the reality of evil in our day. He says Western society is basically brought into the idea that we have a scientific worldview and that there's no such thing as evil. Now that's not his view, he's just looking at the American worldview. So what's the problem with this girl? It's not demons. It's certainly not sin. It's certainly not slave owners. You know what the problem is? It's so sociological. It's psychological. It's environmental. All you have to do is change this girl's social structure, provide better therapy, a more loving home environment, a better mother and father, and everything's going to be resolved. Folks, that is absolutely not the Christian worldview. I hope you realize today that the Christian worldview suggests, not suggests, states this, that Satan is real. Go all the way back to the garden, Genesis 3, tempting Adam and Eve. He prowls about, 1 Peter, like a roaring lion seeking whom he may, may devour. Jesus gave the mission statement of Satan and the demons in John 10. Check it out, it's on the screen. And it's a very important mission statement. The thief, Satan, comes to do three things. To kill, steal, and destroy people's lives. Let me ask you a question. If you were 11 to 14 years old, living 2,000 years ago in the city of Philippi, and your life was demon-possessed, you were possession of slave owners, you were going around fortune-telling, making a ton of money, how would you feel? 
kill, steal, and destroy. That's what's happening to this gal. And what happens? Paul comes for the first time to Philippi with team, preaches the gospel, and she is set free. I have good news this morning. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 states this. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose. And don't miss this next phrase, my friends. To destroy the work of the devil. Isn't that great news? In your life and mine, not just 2,000 years ago, not just to a demon-possessed gal. This is remarkable what God is doing. So look at what Paul says. In verse 18, he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And notice what happens by the name of Jesus Christ. And the spirit came out right away. Would you agree with me there's power in the name of Jesus and friends, we just don't sing about that. We just don't celebrate that. That is the reality of Jesus Christ. His name is above every name. John chapter 8 says there this, Therefore, if the Son will set you free, you will be free indeed. Can you imagine the freedom this girl experienced through the gospel of Jesus Christ? Colossians 3.13 states, it's a beautiful compliment to 1 John 3, 8. He, Jesus, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transformed us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Think, think about the implications of that just for a moment. He rescued us from the domain of darkness. The word domain is a big word in Scripture. It means from the control, from the authority of darkness, from the jurisdiction, from the rule of the kingdom of darkness. And so she experiences freedom then. What's God's goal for us today? To be set free in Christ. Now friends, as I wrote this talk this morning, I saw great tension in this passage. If the Son will set you free, you'll be free indeed. But it begs the question in the church today, why do we struggle to live and walk in that freedom? Why do we struggle to overcome the power of darkness, sin, and evil in our life? Billy Graham, after 70 years of public ministry, made this statement. It got my attention. He said this, that the average Christian lives at best a mediocre life. Is that God's will? It's just the opposite. First John says we are called to be overcomers, super victorious. Why? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. A number of years ago, Ellen and I, in a different ministry, were at a staff retreat. And I got a call from a gentleman, good friend, and he says, Keith, I need help. We need help. Our marriage has fallen apart. Our family has fallen apart. Could you and Ellen meet with us today? We cut our retreat short, and we spent a couple hours with this dear couple. They just came through what's called the Family Life Conference. They went to the weekend to get away. Highly recommend that marriage conference, by the way. During the conference, they were encouraged to become brutally honest with each other about their marriage. How is it going? Is there fruits? And so the fella started to confess some sins. He traveled a lot, and he visited clubs. And he experienced the worst of the worst in these nightclubs. He was overcome by the darkness of the internet, and it was literally destroying his love relationship 
with his wife. She then confessed because of his distance to an emotional affair. And their marriage and family was unraveling. Folks, these are believers, followers of Jesus Christ. And it begs the question, how can it be? If Jesus rescued us from the domain of darkness, if the Son will set you free, you'll be free indeed. How can it be that a Christian couple is struggling with such darkness in their marriage and their families unraveling? There is an answer, and it's in Galatians chapter 5. There is an answer. It's in Acts 16. It's called spiritual warfare. I hope you realize today that there is a war going on in your life and mine right now as we speak. The spirit of God in believers is waging war against the flesh, the appetites of our life. The flesh, Paul said to the Galatian church, is waging war against the spirit. And there is a constant battle. The question is who will win, the spirit or the flesh. In this couple's life, the flesh was winning out big time, and it was destroying their marriage. I want to highlight a passage in Galatians chapter 5 that we don't talk about much. It is the antithesis to what's called the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. That's the beautiful side of the Christian life when the Spirit has control. But guess what happens when the flesh has control? Track with me, I'll show you what the scripture says. Paul's writing to a church that was being ravaged by the flesh. And here's what it says. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Notice the first three. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity. I find it ironic that Paul puts sexual sins at the top of the list of fleshly appetites. What was true 2,000 years ago is true today, friends. There is an epidemic, not just in the world, in the church. Do you realize my profession today, 50% of pastors will confess to struggling with the internet and the dark side of it. And some are addicted. Pastors preaching in the pulpits. And if they're struggling, how much more so the lay individual? The data against us for sexual purity is off the charts. And Paul highlights that. But not only sexual purity, continuing on, look what he says, idolatry and sorcery. Two weeks from now, we'll look at idolatry. And it's a real issue. It's one of the grievous sins in all of scripture. But then notice the next eight words. They're all relational words, folks. Think through what Paul is saying here. When the flesh rears its ugly head, what's going to happen? Even in the body of Christ, even in Christian marriages, even in a youth ministry, here's what will happen when the flesh wins out. Hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. I know this isn't really pleasant this morning. Some of you are guests saying, wow, wrong church, honey. But this is the word of God. This is what this gal was being freed from. The world, the flesh, and the devil are real enemies. And then he moves forward. Drunkenness, carousing. One of our elders this past week said he had two dear friends in Christ uh, through addiction to alcohol and drugs walk away from the faith. Can you imagine? 
Paul is just honest to say that the flesh will wear its ugly head, but the spirit of God in us can wage war and the victory can come. And so then Paul concludes this passage. I tell you about these things in advance, as I told you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're not talking about eternal life. We're not talking about heaven. The kingdom of God is the fruit of living in the joy of the Lord. Psalm 51, when David fell, prayed to adultery, he says, Lord, restore the joy of my salvation. When we live according to the flesh, our joy is robbed. Our relationships are broken. Sexual promiscuity kills so much. Love between a husband and wife, respect among leadership and children. Look at a relational disharmony in Galatians. You keep it up, Paul says, you're going to devour each other. And so where do we go from here? It really begs the question, what's the remedy? What does the family of God do? Well, I want to propose one beautiful way God has won the day over uh, decades of ministry. I want to introduce you this morning to a ministry called Freedom in Christ. Freedom in Christ is a remarkable ministry. Let me tell you my story. Many of you know I came from a broken home. My dad was an alcoholic. He left early, died when he was 40. Abandoned mom, abandoned the, the kids. I didn't know what to do with that as a young uh, man. I was angry, frustrated, hurt, unforgiving. Then we invited the president of Freedom in Christ Ministry to uh, lead a youth retreat that I was overseeing. A lot of kids, a lot of staff. Everybody went whitewater rafting. I hurt my back. I couldn't go. Rich Miller's there. I'm there. He says, Keith, you want to go through Freedom in Christ Ministry? I kind of really didn't want to. Wanted to take a break, hang out, relax, but we did. Guess what happened, folks? Three hours later, my heart was broken. I was weeping. And I was able to forgive my father, my biological father, for the first time. I didn't know how much hurt was deep down inside. I didn't know how broken I was over the reality. And many years ago, we're talking over three decades ago, I got freedom from that and understood that dad, yeah, he made some bad decisions. He was a slave to sin. He died outside of Christ. But to forgive him set me free. And what a gift that was. So this morning, the elders want to bring before you what we're calling a discipleship ministry at Westwood. The discipleship ministry suggests this. We know some of you here this morning are stuck. You're really struggling to find freedom from relational brokenness, sexual sins, addictive behaviors. And what we want to propose is two things this morning. Number one, there was a great resource by Neil Anderson. By the way, over two million books have been sold Victory Over to the Darkness. The impact is international. It's one of the best books to overcome the sins that we're talking about this morning. And so what we ask people to do is read that, engage it, prayerfully think through it, study it, engage the word of God. But then the second thing is the steps to freedom. That's what Dr. Rich Miller took me through over three decades ago. And friends, one of the things Ellen and I do is we still use steps to freedom in our own life for a spiritual inventory. Get away for a day, walk through the seven steps, process things before God, confessing sins, renewing our relationship with him. We know this isn't the end all, but this is a start to move forward in the right direction. 
And so my challenge to you this morning is this. Christ wants to set you free. He does. He's rescued us. He's done the work. He wants to move us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and walk in the joy of the Lord. If there's any sin that you're stuck in today, anything hidden or private, we can bring it to the light. We can deal with it and find freedom in Christ. But you have to take the step. That couple today, they're still dear friends. They're still in the church that we were in previously. They're growing in the Lord. Their marriage is together. We thank God that they took the initiative from a marriage conference to a phone call, two steps to freedom, and finding healing through Jesus. That's our privilege. And so secondly, actually, that was, th- that was four. Um, let's go to the next one, number five. Divine initiative number five. God works to transform people through the gospel. And here's the beautiful thing about Acts 16. There's three individuals that were profiled. And I think Acts 16 is given us as a thesis chapter to prove Acts 1-8. To go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Remember, we're in Philippi. The gospel has never come there previously. And so remember where we started last week. We looked at a gal named Lydia. Let me put her scripture up there for just a moment. Lydia is a professional woman. She had a really cool thing going on. She's, she's selling garments of, of, of purple. She's affluent. She's making money. And what happened? She's a God-fearer. She moved from paganism and polytheism to do what? To seek the God of the Bible. And then Paul and team shows up with the gospel of Jesus Christ. She comes to faith in Christ. Lydia gets saved and baptized. Now, Acts 16.8, what happens? A slave girl. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out right away. So we're seeing the kingdom come. We're seeing someone at the top of her game who owned a professional boutique, who was very wealthy and influential in the community. Now we're seeing a slave girl at the bottom rung of the ladder, demon-possessed, controlled, and she is set free. But how about this Philippian jailer? I want to give a little profile of who this jailer was. As best we can discern, he was a former Roman soldier because a lot of the prison guards uh, were retired Roman soldiers. So he's a hard man, if you will. He's a blue-collar guy. He's tougher than nails. He's working for Rome. And what does Rome want to do? Rome wants to squelch every effort for disruption anywhere. And so he's got his thumb on people. Look at the text in Acts 16. After they inflicted many blows on them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to keep them securely guarded. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. Two things about that passage. One, the inner prison. Uh, There were nicer places in Roman prisons. This was the worst of the worst. It was dark, it was dingy, there was no sanitation, it was the worst of the worst. So Paul and Silas get thrown into this nasty hellhole, if you will. And then when they put stocks on them, basically, you're just stuck, you can't sleep. Why are they singing and praising at the midnight hour? Because they're uncomfortable. It's putrid where they are. They just got beat up. Their wounds are fresh. Blood is everywhere. It's stenchy. 
And so the only thing they could do was stand in awe of God, why Jesus said, blessed are you if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then what does God do, remember? Open doors, open hearts. What's the open door? He causes a miracle. The prison cell is shaken. The prisoners are released. The Roman soldier says, uh-oh, I'm in trouble because if you, as a Roman uh, prisoner guard, lose your prisoners, your life would be taken from Rome. So he was just going to take his own. But what happens, Paul says, don't do it. And he has an encounter with Jesus Christ. And so <clears throat> look what we read about this prison guard, Acts 16:34. Then the jailer rejoiced because he had believed God with his entire household. Folks, this is remarkable. A professional woman who owns a beautiful boutique making a lot of money. A slave girl, demon-possessed, and here's a blue-collar guy, harder than nails, coming to genuine faith in Christ. You know what uh, Luke wants us to know? The gospel is for all. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard someone say, I'm glad Christianity works for you? You ever hear someone say that? Folks, I hear it all the time. That's great for you. I'm happy for you. Way to go. To each his own, especially when it comes from religion. Thumbs up. Good stuff. You know what the premise of that statement is? That there is not one faith that works for everyone. You know what Luke wants us to know in Acts 16? That Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And there is one faith that is so true, so rich, so deep, so flexible... It will invite a professional woman who has everything life has to offer to give her life to Christ. It will transform a demon-possessed slave girl who has new life in Christ. It'll take a hardened prison soldier for Rome and humble his heart, cause him to repent, and then influence his family for the kingdom and glory of God and all get baptized. It's a remarkable message. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ can and does change anyone. Therefore, we must say, hallelujah. God can work in each and every life. Christianity, then, I would say this, has nothing to do with a Christian type. And what do I mean by that? Sometimes we think, oh, it, it, it more leans towards the poor or the rich. No. Oh, it leans more towards east than west. No. That it leans towards um, individuals who are conservative or liberal? No. Individuals who are cultured or messed up? No. You know what the reality is this morning? We are all messed up. Would you agree with that? Metaphorically, Paul uses this slavery motif. Romans 6 says we're slaves to sin. And when you're a slave to sin, you must obey your master. And so what happens, Christianity is true, it can break any chain, it can fill any need and void that exists in a person's life. And so may I encourage you, the name and gospel of Jesus Christ attracted Lydia to listen, God opened her heart, she came to genuine faith in Christ. The name and gospel of Jesus Christ freed a slave girl from the bondage of demon possession and set her free. The name and gospel of Jesus Christ softened a hardened Roman uh, jailer to repent and influence his family for the kingdom and glory of God. 
And so Acts 16, verse 31, says it all. What must we do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be saved, you and your household. Friends, that's a powerful truth. And so what I would conclude this morning is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You believe that? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And may I add one more caveat? For all people, this is a gospel for everyone. And so, finally, divine initiative number six. God works to bear much fruit for his glory and our good. What we see in Acts 16 is we see remarkable fruit. There's so much we could conclude here, but let me share with you four things. Number one, the fruit of oneness in Christ. And friends, I don't want you to minimize this right now because if you read the Bible, and especially Paul's uh, writings, would you agree sometimes Paul gets a bad rap with women? It looks like he's a little bit biased. Ladies, have you ever felt that reading Paul? Anybody want to be honest? I know Tina. Tina's always honest with me about that. He does, you know, it's like, hey, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that. It's all this restriction stuff. He seems like a restrictor, right? Like Paul's against women. Friends, it's just the opposite. Guess who the first two gals, first two people who come to faith in Christ in Philippi are? World-class city. Who was it? Lydia, slave girl. It is a remarkable statement as to how Christianity raised the bar in the ancient world because slaves and women were basically equal in status. Christianity says, no, that's ludicrous. That's never been God's plan or design. Paul comes into a world-class city. A professional woman comes to faith in Christ. Boom, Lydia, and then a slave girl. God's for all people. And that's why, and I've said this before to you, Galatians 3.28 is one of the most remarkable statements in all the Bible. We don't capture it because it was such a division in the ancient world. There was a class system. There was an apartheid. There was no unity. But look what Paul says, Galatians 3.28. There is no Jew or Greek. Oh, man, were they divided. Male, slave or free, male or female, you're all one in Christ. Do you see what the body of Christ is? We're a family. The The... the Playing ground is level in Christianity. It's eye to eye, heart to heart. Brother and sister, we're doing this thing together. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that's what Paul wants us to know. Secondly, not only the fruit of oneness, the fruit of baptism. What I look for when I study the Bible is I look for patterns. There is an absolute pattern in the book of Acts. It doesn't change, and it shows up most dramatically in Acts 16. Let me show you the pattern. Acts 16, what happens... Lydia comes to faith in Christ. Her family hears the gospel, and what's the first thing that happens in their lives? They're baptized. Baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Notice the pattern. The Philippian jailer comes to faith in Christ. What happens? The gospel's preached to his family, and they are baptized that very night. Folks, that's an immediate response of obedience of faith. It's a fulfillment of the Great Commission. Jesus, final words before he ascends into heaven, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. What are you supposed to do? 
baptize them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you, lo, I'm with you always, even to the ends of the age. The absolute normative pattern, there's not one exception in the book of Acts is people believed and were baptized. Now, I know some of you might have a question. Uh, what about those who were baptized, maybe in a different denomination, as they grew up in a, a different persuasion of the Christian worldview? What about infant baptism? What about covenant baptism? And here's what we say at Westwood Church. We are so thankful for what God does for infants and children in those early days, months, even years of life. But the biblical statement is this, folks. Believe and be baptized. So I was baptized as an infant. I thank God for what my parents did for me. But at age 19, I came to trust Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. And quickly after, was baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. By the way, that night, Ellen was baptized too. So I'm the old guy in the pool. She's the young girl in the pool. Many years later, we get married. Way to go. It happened in the waters of baptism. Not really. So, but the encouragement this morning is this. It's absolute. Believe, be baptized. And so it's obedience of faith. It, it is the fruit of faith. Third, the fruit of family faith. And I wish I had more time to unpack this, but isn't it remarkable that in Acts 16, twice, Lydia and her family come to faith in Christ, get baptized. The Philippian jailer and his family come to faith in Christ and get baptized. No, twice in this passage, it's through the preaching of the gospel, right? We already learned last week that Timothy's father wasn't a believer. So it's not an absolute thing. But what is Luke trying to say? One thing, come to faith in Christ as a family. God values family units pursuing him. Why? Husbands and wives together. Children, the whole family saying yes and being an influence to their extended family, to their community and beyond. God values family faith. Parents, keep chasing after that. Students, thank you for sitting down front, for engaging the Lord. Come to faith in Christ as a family and reflect his love and glory. And then finally, this is one of my favorite, favorite points, the fruit of hospitality. Look how the chapter closes. After leaving the jail, they came to whose house? Lydia's house, where they saw and encouraged the brothers and departed. You know what happened? Paul, the hater of women, not true, has the church planted in Lydia's house. That is an honor, folks. That is status in the ancient world. It just didn't happen. This is counterculture. Lydia's hosting the church of Jesus Christ in her home. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. There's neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. We're all one in Christ. She opened her home. She was hospitable. And God's kingdom came. So let's talk just briefly about hospitality. For the first 300 years of the church, basically the church met in homes. Now you see in Acts going to the temple court. You see Paul going to the synagogue, a place of worship. You'll see that. You see the God-fearers by the river. We've seen that in Acts 16. There were other places. But the dominant place is the home was open for the church to meet and for the gospel to expand. 
I would say what was true then is also true now. What a great way to do kingdom work, opening our home for the kingdom and glory of God. Now, a few questions in our worship team. I want to invite you to come back up. The Philippian jailer asked this great, great question. What must I do to be saved? What is the answer? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So may I ask this morning, and it's such an important question, have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith and trust in him? Folks, that's what the book of Acts is all about. It's about God's kingdom coming, not then, but now in your life. Have you believed? And then what about obedience of faith? If you've believed, have you been baptized? Oh, what a blessing it is to identify with the death, burial, and resurrection through baptism. The testimony. The night I was baptized, my mom came to faith in Christ. I'll always remember that. A beautiful moment to testify of his goodness in our life. Third, are you living free? Are you walking in the light? Can I speak to the men here this morning? For 10 years in a previous ministry, we ran a ministry called Every Man's Battle. We had at least 100 men who were struggling to live pure. And they said yes to being honest. They said yes to engaging accountability. They said yes to putting things in place to ensure God would be honored in purity. We want to help if you're struggling. We're trying to be sensitive this morning, but we're also trying to be very honest. This is real in the church. So let's step forward and help each other. Freedom in Christ is one tool. Every man's battle we did for 10 years, two semesters a year. Dozens and dozens of men finding freedom in Christ. If you're stuck, you need help, please talk to Pastor Jason, myself, any of our elders. We're here to come alongside. We want you to experience this freedom. And then finally, how's the fruit? Are you bearing much fruit for his kingdom and glory? I mean, that's God's desire. Fruit should be a natural byproduct, John 15, of abiding in him. We've seen a few pictures of fruit. One, hospitality, what a beautiful thing, opening your homes. You know, it was neat last week. Um, we talked a little bit about the chairs. This is just a side note. But you talk about fruit. We had seed money of about $800 for some chairs, and then a family came up right after worship, wrote a $1,000 check. That was so fun. $1,800 for chair. We're sitting in staff meeting. Guess how much we have right now? $6,800 dedicated for comfy chairs. We'll probably call them bouncy chairs. But we're bringing them in. We're testing them. We're just so happy. But why do I mention that, folks? When you live generously for the kingdom and glory of God, all it is is fruit. It's fruit of your faith. For God so loved the world, he gave his best, right? He's generous with us. We have the privilege to be generous with him. Let's keep abiding in Christ, bearing much fruit for his kingdom and glory. Let's stand as we worship together.